Well, good morning and welcome to New St. Peter's Presbyterian Church. If you're visiting with us, we're glad that you're here. Uh, it's a privilege to have you join us for worship on this day. And we've been for this spring season studying the Psalms here on Sunday mornings. And this morning we'll do that again with Psalms 127 and 128. You can see that on page 6 of your bulletin. And next Sunday we'll wrap up our season of Psalms for now and then begin a different uh, course of things for the summer. A, A guest preacher on June 14, Dan Smith, is the RUF campus minister at, uh, in Tyler, at the University of Tyler and, and uh, the, the colleges around there. And Dan is going to come and preach for us on that date. And uh, then we'll bre- begin some other things for the summer after that. But this morning we're in the Psalms again. And, and Psalms 127 and 128 together are what's known as Songs of Ascent. So if you're looking in your Bible, which you may not be, you're looking in your bulletin, it says the same. But the, the heading of those psalms, um, actually these psalms, and the beginning with Psalm 120, there are about 15 of them that are known as songs of ascent. These are, are songs that it's thought the, that the Israelites would sing together on their pilgrimages up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem geographically is actually elevated higher than the surrounding land, and so people would travel to Jerusalem, traveling up, ascending up to Jerusalem for the annual Jewish feasts. And these two together are companion psalms. The, the first one, you can see, is noted that it's a song of Solomon. It's written by King Solomon. It's, many is, is, are thought to, uh, that, that Solomon wrote this psalm. Some are not so sure about it, but as you hear it, you'll realize it sounds a whole lot like the proverbial wisdom of Solomon. And there's actually sort of a hidden signature here that that some suggest is Solomon's work. Uh, But these two psalms together help us to recognize the eternal blessing of a life reconciled to God in Christ and, and how it resonates through your work and your family and the church and society. You young Christians, as I read these psalms, as you listen and read along with me, notice that the writer mentions children a few times, and and a couple of times he says, children are like, and he gives you a word picture there. See if you can notice those. It give give you something to draw, a good picture to draw. See if you can draw a picture of what children are like. This is Psalm 127 and 128, a song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city... The watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. And then Psalm 128, a song of ascents. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in His ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. 
The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but these words of our God stand forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would give to us your spirit again. We recognize, Lord, that apart from your work in us, even our preaching and hearing are in vain because you alone can cause things to matter. You alone grant eternal blessing and significance. And would you do that this morning, we pray, as we listen and hear from your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In our garage, I've recently begun building, along with the help of one of my sons, a table. It's going to be a desk. Taking the natural resources of God's creation, as provided by Home Depot, and fashioning them after our own purposes. We're, we're building a desk, and, and it's for his room. And I wonder, you know, we'll use it for a season of time. I realize that years pass, and usage of such things pass, passes by. And, and, and what will come of this desk? You know, what will happen with it after the season of his using it in his room as a desk to study and to work at? Will he maybe in coming decades, pass it on to his son? Perhaps. Maybe his son will pass it on to his son, even, and it will become a family heirloom of sorts. Perhaps. You know, maybe. Or maybe, you know, more likely, it will just become a forgotten relic. It will become a, a discarded old piece of furniture that we made in the garage one time, and it collects dust in the corner of some room with paper piles gathered on it where people organize their things, and they forget where the desk ever came from, and it just won't matter. Or, will it ever be an antique? And I wonder that. Something that has real meaning, real significance and purpose beyond just sitting in my garage today unfinished. Could it ever be an antique? We have an antique piece of furniture in our house. It's an English sideboard made of mahogany that Mary and I found some years ago in a shop in western North Carolina. It was built in the 1830s. It's a beautiful, polished mahogany sideboard in our dining room. It it even has in one of its compartments a drawer that you can pull out and uncover, because I put a board over it to protect it, uncover to see the original lead paper lining that is in this drawer that 200 years ago was the cooler in a dining room that would keep things cool in this old English sideboard. I would love to know some of its stories. I would love to know some of the people that owned this piece of furniture. I would love to know the places where it has lived for decades and generations, even through families. I would love to know the journey that it has taken to get to our dining room. Wouldn't it be fascinating to know the stories behind an antique piece of furniture? The thing has lived as it were, for almost 200 years. And as I consider the table that my son and I are building in the garage and this mahogany English sideboard sitting in our dining room, I have to wonder, how does the one become like the other? 
because, after all, they're both made of wood. They're both finished by the hands of men. They both stand quietly in a room serving a purpose, but one has a value that the other can only dream of. That's the contrast that these psalms together actually create for us. That's the contrast that these psalms paint for us and demonstrate. But as singing Israelites ascended up to Jerusalem, to the temple there, the very locus of God's presence, the presence of Yahweh Himself, as singing Israelites ascended up to the presence of God Himself, they weren't thinking of common furniture, but rather they were thinking and singing of human life and the labors of its hands. What was it, after all, that gave their very pilgrim lives a stake in the ground, a a purpose, a significance, a, a meaning, a blessing eternally in the world that God had created? What is it that gave their lives a stake in the ground? Together, these psalms move, if you noticed, in their imagery as we read them. They move from the city to the family to the heart of an individual, then back to the family, and then to finish, back to the city. This is the movement that these psalms actually make in their imagery. Now, it's two psalms, I recognize, and so I don't know if it's their poetic intent, but it's certainly a providential help for us to understand their collective wisdom, which is this, eternal blessing, eternal significance and meaning and even happiness is to be found only, only as one fears or reveres the Lord who alone can give that blessing. You can see the central point right in the center of these Psalms. In 127 verse 5, you read, blessed is the man who has children. In Psalm 128 verse 1, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. Verse 2, you shall be blessed. Verse 4, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. And verse 5, the Lord bless you from Zion. The eternal blessing of a life reconciled to God is pictured here really kind of like three concentric circles moving out from one another within this psalm, from the middle of these psalms, and each circle is tied to the other. So let's begin right in the middle of it and see the eternal blessing of the one, the the individual, that is. Psalm 128, verse 1, right in the middle of these psalms together. Blessed is every one who fears the Lord, who walks in His ways. He shall eat the fruit of the labor of His hands. He shall be blessed, and it shall be well with Him. Now, that's the meaning of life, isn't it? That's, that's the, the thing that we all want. We might not put it in those very words, but those words describe exactly what we all want. We, we want to be able to eat the fruit of our labor. We hope that our labor, our work, from week to week will produce something good and meaningful and sweet for us to enjoy, right? We want to eat the, the fruit of our labor. We want to be blessed, whatever that might mean to you, as far as you understand what it could be. And we certainly would love for all to go well with us. I mean, this is the purpose of life, isn't it? It's the meaning of life. Everyone wants this, but what's the path that gets you there? 
Well, as Americans, we think of many things that, that might get us there. Education, could it be education? I just need more education. Or could it be achievements or effort or connections or parental controls, mom and dad? You can get son and daughter there by controlling their lives in certain ways. That's what they call helicopter parents, I think, right? Are those the path to get there? All those things are helpful in their own ways, perhaps. But no, the the wisdom of this psalm points you in a different direction and down a different path altogether. What is the path that leads to this meaning of life? It's a properly directed reverence. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord. Now, this is very Solomon-like language, isn't it? The fear of the Lord, after all, is the beginning of wisdom, Solomon tells us in the Proverbs. And and this this is Solomon's wisdom And that fear, that fear of the Lord is is a term that we as Christians banter about as though we always know what we're talking about and we expect others to know what we're talking about, but we're not even so sure ourselves sometimes that we want. Because who wants to fear their parents? Who wants to fear the Lord in the way that we think of it? It's a complex idea, often misunderstood, but at root, it's really simply reverence. John Newton was an old British pastor and even former slave trader. Many of you know who he was several hundred years ago. And, and Newton was born again. God met him with amazing grace and drew him out of the slave trade where he had spent so many years and, and right into the pastorate. And Newton wrote a hymn, a hymn that you probably know. It's called Amazing Grace. And in that hymn, John Newton helps us understand with one phrase, the fear of the Lord. Maybe you know these words. He wrote it this way. He said, It was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. One phrase. Newton is talking about two fears, but one grace. That grace taught him to fear or to revere God, and that same grace taught him to dismiss his worldly fears. One grace and two fears. And Newton was exactly right because to the extent that you know the grace of God, you will revere Him. But otherwise, apart from knowing His grace, you'll fear Him. You'll be afraid. And maybe you might not admit it that way, but you'll hate Him if you don't know His grace, ultimately. And so His grace teaches you to fear, to revere Him. And that grace is evident in what I would call the eternal blessing or significance of every one and that is your vocation. Okay, changing gears a little bit. The fear of God leads to your recognition of His blessing of you, and that is your vocation. And here's where I think these psalms connect with anyone, Christian or not. It doesn't matter. All you have to be is a human being to connect with these psalms at this point because they speak of You're building and laboring and watching and toiling. The work that you do, which the psalmist points out, apart from the Lord, is in vain, right? This is the work that you do. But it alludes to something much bigger than your work. It alludes to your calling. Everyone has the blessing of a vocation. That is a calling. And that is this. To build what's important to God out of reverence for Him. Every one of us shares that vocation in common. Whether you're a Christian or not, either way, 
Your calling in life is to build what's important to the one who built you. And that's the thrust of this psalm. The difference between the table built in my garage and the polished mahogany sideboard built 200 years ago in England is this very thing. It's it's the thrust of calling. To fear the Lord and to walk in His ways, as these verses say, is not good behavior, Christian. That's not what the psalmist is after. It's not what the gospel is after. It's not concerned about your good behavior, although that should be a fruit of your fear of the Lord. Rather, its concern is much greater. Its concern is that you build what's important to Him. That's how you walk in the way of the Lord. It's helpful, I think, at this point to distinguish between vocation and job. So, let me try that for a moment here and see if I can do it. As I've struggled in my 47 years of trying to figure this out, everybody has a vocation, but not everybody has a job. Everybody has a vocation, but not everybody has a job. You might be a stay-at-home mom or a stay-at-home dad. You might be unemployed, or you might be a full-time student. You may not have a job, but you have a vocation. Your vocation is to build what's important to God. Your job is the employment that provides the paycheck to support your vocation. Does that make sense? They're two very different things, but they're not mutually exclusive. Ideally, in a world without the fall, your job would match your vocation, right? According to your gifts and abilities as God has given to you opportunities, your job that pays you and puts bread on the table would match your vocation of building what's important to God. Ideally, that's what would be the case, and for many of you it is. But because of the fall... As Scripture tells us, you will eat bread by the sweat of your brow. Sometimes your job won't match your vocation. It'll simply put bread on the table by the sweat of your your brow. And because of that, we're confused often about our purpose in life. It seems to me my purpose should be much bigger than the job that pays to put bread on the table. And we want more than that. But you have more than that because of the eternal blessing of God for the one and so, when someone asks you that, that so common question, what do you do, and, and how many of you have been asked that this week, this month, when you, whenever you meet someone new, they ask you, and you ask them, so what do you do? You know, you could tell them about your job, and that would be fine. A job is a good thing. You also could tell them about your vocation. You could say, what I do is I build things that are important to God. You could say that and see what expression you get on their face. I'd be curious. I'd like to hear you say that. What do you do? I build things that are important to God. Because your vocation is bigger than your job. Now again, they're not mutually exclusive, but your vocation is bigger than your job. Hopefully you see that your job builds what's important to God, but your vocation is bigger than your job. A problem arises, though, for us, when we begin to make our job to be bigger than our vocation. And this is what we American Christians love to do. I can't speak for Christians in other cultures and places, but I know where we live and I know what we do. This is the way that we think. We like to make our job bigger than our vocation. In fact, we often simply forget our vocation 
and emphasize our job to the very end of our lives. And that's all that really matters. We like to accumulate material wealth. We like to posture for professional positions. We like to strive for social rank. We like to collect personal power. Those are not bad things in and of themselves. But apart from your vocation, they're just a part of your job. And if that's all that you have, then you've turned from the Lord's ways to build a Tower of Babel, or Babel, however you pronounce it, wherever you're from. And God tears down Towers of Babel. He tears them down. You have the eternal blessing that comes to the one, to the individual, and that's your vocation to build what's important to the Lord. And that blessing extends out to the next concentric circle, which is the many. Because in seeing that, you see that the most important building in God's eyes is the family. Notice on either side of that central statement, the statement about fearing the Lord and walking in His ways, on either side of those verses, both before and after it, you find family. Verse 3, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. And then in verse 3 below it, Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. And here's the heart of vocation, the heart of your calling. And your vocation is bigger than your job. You know, you might lose your job. And many of you have. You've lost a job at some point along the way. And and when you do, you hope to find another job equivalent to what you were doing before that you liked doing. And that pays an equivalent way. That's what you hope for. But that might not be what you find. And so you might have to take a lesser job. Why? Because you have to support your vocation, which is to build what's important to God. And what's the most important thing to the Lord? The family. And everyone lives according to this. You have to because you're a human being. The family is the most important building to God. And so the psalmist speaks to it. Children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward. Now, many parents will read that and they'll remember late nights and crying babies and diaper changes and frustrated teenage parenting and all the stuff that comes with it. And you'll think, is this really the reward that comes from this? I'm not so sure that I like that. But, you know, the fact is in the big picture, God actually gives to parents far more Far more. Now, kids, listen carefully because I'm giving you all kinds of leverage. God gives to parents far, far more through their children than parents give to their children. Kids, you didn't know this, did you? And this is true. God gives to parents far more through their children than parents give to their children. Dan Allender is an author who, who wrote a fascinating book. I've mentioned it to you before. In years past, it's worth getting just for the title alone. The title is this, How Children Raise Parents. Let that sink in for a minute. How Children Raise Parents. God sanctifies you through them. He gives to you and gives to you and gives to you abundantly through your children. They are a heritage from the Lord, a fruit of labor. And... Thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. He goes on through the the ideas of this. 
uh, a wife will be like a fruitful vine in your house, this one who fears the Lord, a wife who's patient and persistently a teammate of this one who fears the Lord. I know what it's like in my own house and what a blessing it is to have one who is such a person producing what's sweet and good for the family. Children are like olive shoots around your table. Now, when I read this psalm to my family yesterday, my kids weren't so sure about being olive shoots around the table, but they did remember shooting olives from the table (laughs) at one point in the past, but that's a personal problem that I need to deal with. What are olive shoots? I mean, kids, why would the Lord call you olive shoots around the table? What is an olive shoot? Well, an olive shoot is a, is a tender, small sprout of an olive tree. It's, it's tender, it's gentle, it's fragile, and, and children are tender and gentle and fragile. But it's an olive shoot. Olive trees were such an important part of Middle Eastern culture and still are today that it's illustrative of what a child would be. And an olive tree, as it grew, would be an evergreen tree. It would take time. They would be slow to grow and mature, just like a child. It would take them 15 years before they would actually produce a, a, a harvest of olives. But when they did, when they began to do that, they would be durable. They're, they're durable trees. They can grow almost anywhere. They need almost no care at all. They're durable and strong. I mean, remember the, the story of Noah and the flood. You've been thinking about it lately with the rain, right? You've been looking for arcs. When Noah was reaching the end of the flood, he sent the dove out to find dry ground. And what did the dove come back with? Olive leaves. The Lord doesn't explain that to us in Genesis. Why was an olive tree still in existence? It's a durable, strong plant. And this is what children are like. They're like olive shoots around your table. They're also like arrows in the hand of a warrior. Now, dads don't take too much pride in this illusion. Okay, you might like to think of yourself as a warrior, but the point is not that. The point is that your children are like arrows in the hand of a warrior. They're eager to do something good for the warrior. They're eager to please him. This is what children are like. And the man who fills his quiver with children shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies at the gate. An ancient custom in in Israelite society, in ancient society, was that at the gates of the city, the men would gather, and there's where the business would be conducted, and disputes would be settled, and justice would be found at the gates of the city. And a man who's accompanied by his many children has that many more advocates along with him to vouch for his honor, to vouch for his trustworthiness, to defend him. And so he shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies at the gate. This looks a little bit different nowadays, doesn't it? Because we don't go to the gate for such things. But it still applies to those of you who are caring for your elderly parents. You know, you know that this verse speaks to you. Because apart from you being the arrows filling the quiver of your parents, they have no one to speak for themselves as they grow old. And so this speaks to you. But what if you don't have biological children, though? You know, all this stuff about family. And so many of us wonder, you know, I don't, I don't have children. I may be married or I may not be married. What if you don't have 
biological children, is there such a heritage for you? I thought this week in thinking about this, and I asked Mary about it because she knows him better than I do. David Vining is uh, a friend. David is a man who is a, a school teacher at Macaulay School in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and he's also a tennis coach. He began teaching and coaching tennis in 1984 at Macaulay, and at the same time, that same year, he began teaching tennis in the summers at a girls' camp in North Carolina where Mary met him years and years ago. David was not married until he was in his 50s. He has no biological children himself. But I think I'm not exaggerating when I say he knows when, when the birthday is of every kid that he's ever taught. Am I right? He always knows their birthdays because he cares for them and he's spoken to them of the gospel and built them up in his work with them through all these years. The man has hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of spiritual children. In a few short years, much shorter than I want them to be, my own kids are going to graduate from high school. And our house will be empty of kids for the most part. And at that point, will I then be done? Will, will I have no more heritage from the Lord? Well, I mean, there, Lord willing, might be grandchildren to come along the way. I'll still be a parent to grown kids and all that kind of thing. But, but will I then be done? No, no, you're never done with this. And you're never void of the calling, whatever your station in life, to build what's important to God. And you have to find ways to do it, even if it's apart from biological children. You you can share the privilege of gospel blessing with those who don't have the privilege. It is a gracious privilege to have parents, to have elders. And by that, I don't mean elders in the church, but, but people who are older than you who can care for you and provide for you and, and put children in a position to succeed. This is a privilege that so many of us in our demographic, in our church body, in our society, we don't, we don't recognize unless you don't have it. And pretty much all of us had it. We had parents who cared for us, who read books to us and gave us an advantage in life. I saw something about a, a ridiculous study recently that a PhD scholar, so to speak, did in England recently. He, he's curious about, about parents and children and reading. And, and he's done a study, so to speak, in which he has concluded that parents who read to their children should stop. Because they're doing a disservice to all of the unprivileged children out there who don't have parents to read to them. They're giving their children an advantage over those who don't have. That observation is correct. His assumption that parents should stop is stupid. I don't know what he got his PhD in. But his assumption is stupid. Parents shouldn't stop reading to their kids because they're passing on the privilege of gospel blessing to them, putting them in a position to succeed in life. Many children don't have that, which is what he saw. But gospel people can give that, even to those who aren't their own biological children. You can find opportunities to do that. You can. They're out there. They're next door, behind every door at the apartments over here beside the theater. You can find opportunities to pour yourself into children that they might be, be arrows in your quiver. You know, even without biological children, as painful as that might be, 
still you can build what's important to God in the lives of children. The eternal blessing of the many is the strength of family, biological or spiritual, however it might be for you, but the gospel still is bigger. Now, to step on out to the the third concentric circle of these psalms, the significance of gospel blessing extends to all. This psalm begins with activity in the city. You you could, could see it there, the builders, the watchmen, the laborers. And then it narrows to the activity of the family. Children are like arrows in your quiver. And then it narrows again to the activity in the heart of one person. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord. He shall eat the fruit of his, the labor of his hands. It shall be well with him. And then it expands again back to the family. The wife is a fruitful vine. Children are like olive shoots. Thus shall he be blessed who fears the Lord. And then it expands yet again back to the city. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem. May you see the prosperity of the city. Because the foundations of the big picture are built upon the strength of the smaller parts. A society a city, a church, will prosper only insofar as the individuals and the families in it have God's blessing. The psalm begins in vanity. You notice it, and it ends in hope. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. But the one who fears the Lord may see the prosperity of the city. Peace be upon Israel. He's speaking namely about God's people. But if the church is building what's important to God, then its neighbors should be blessed by it. The world doesn't understand this. The world doesn't see this in the same way. For sure, the world builds in vain. You know, Genesis 11, the Tower of of Babel, the people gathered together to see what they could construct apart from, from God, to build their own God, in a sense. Uh, this, this tower to increase their own opportunities and, and self-centered men building for their own self-purpose against God's design, and God opposed it. But the fascinating thing about that chapter 11 in Genesis, the Tower of Babel, is that at the end of that chapter, God quietly gives to an obscure man named Terah the privilege of a son, Abram. A son through whom God has now been building for millennia. He tore down the Tower of Babel and spread them across the earth, and then he began to build. And he continues to build even today. God tears down towers of Babel. Political empires come and political empires go. Cultures arise and then cultures fade away. Individual fortunes amass and then they dissolve over the course of some generations. Even church denominations grow and then they go off track in unfaithfulness and then they shrivel and die. God tears down towers of Babel. In that New Testament reading you heard earlier this morning from Colossians 1, you heard these words, Christ is the image of the invisible God, firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. 
all were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's a profound statement, that every aspect of creation finds its meaning. It's actually held together in its creator. Everything that's built, everything that's protected, everything that's toiled over is held together in him. And Paul continues, You have now been reconciled in his body, in the flesh, by his death, so that he might present you blessed before God. This is the the life of reconciliation with God in the world. And that privilege of the gospel is not lost on this psalm. So I want to wrap it up by making, again, like I did before, much of a detail here. Look at verses 1 and 2 at the very beginning again. You read this, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go to bed late, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Now, there are a couple of things about that phrase right there that we need to pay attention to. One is, does God really give sleep to those he loves? Sure he does. Of course he does do that. It's, it's accurate and true to say that. Of course God gives sleep to those he loves. But there's actually a more concrete way, a more literal way to translate this phrase. And it goes like this. For he gives to his beloved in sleep. In other words, for while they sleep, he gives to his beloved. It's not so much that God is the divine sleeping pill, although he does give sleep to those he loves. But it's not so much that, but rather, he's at work to do good for those who he loves, even when they're not. Now, here's the second thing about this phrase. Who is his beloved? Who is it? Is it? The one who fears the Lord? Well, certainly it is. Anyone who fears the Lord is beloved of God. But this has, many commentators suggest, I think they're right, a double meaning at work here. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, to to go back on into the Old Testament historical books, you read this interesting little passage about David and Bathsheba. Their child, conceived in their unfaithfulness, David's unfaithfulness, dies And they're mourning. And this is what you read. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba in their grief. And she bore another son. And he called his name Solomon. And he was beloved of the Lord. Who then sent a message by Nathan the prophet. To call his name Jedidiah. Because of the Lord. Jedidiah is... A Hebrew phrase that means beloved of the Lord. Solomon was beloved of the Lord. In Psalm 127, verse 2, For he gives to Jedidiah in his sleep. Solomon recognized how God had blessed him. Solomon knew as Jedidiah, as the one beloved of the Lord, that God was providing for him in his sleep. Jedediah is you and me. It's it's those who fear the Lord. But first, it's Solomon. And who was Solomon? Solomon was a wise king. Wise because in reverence to God, he requested wisdom. And that was a very wise request. 
a very reverent request of Solomon. But Solomon's problem was this. He actually heeded very little of his own wisdom. You know the life of Solomon? You know the story of Solomon? It was a mess. He's a disaster. The man was reckless and careless and destructive. In a sense, you could say that Solomon actually slept through his own lessons. But here's what Solomon knows and what we have to know too. Even while Solomon slept, the Lord did good for him. Just like any parent does for their child, right? Mom and dad. Just like any parent does for their child, even as their child sleeps, even as their child ignores, even as their child rebels against and forgets, still a loving mom and dad are going to do good for their child. And this is what Solomon recognizes. Solomon did much. Oh, he did more than all of us combined. He built much. He accomplished much. He was much. But apart from the grace of God, it was all in vain. All in vain. And so it is with you and me and the church and this church. So, what is your eternal significance? What is your eternal blessing that you have? The better question maybe is, what are you building? What are you building? Take a look at the labor of your hands and in reverence for God, build what's important to Him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Lord our God, we pray that You would grant to us such wisdom so that we might indeed have the humility to build what is important to You. Help us, O Lord, because we know that we are prone to build for ourselves, to focus on our job and what it brings to us, rather than recognizing that You, through our hands, are building what's important to You. Would You grant, O Lord, that through our little church here, You might build great things for Your glory, and that we might eat the fruit of Your labor as You've granted it to us in Jesus. For it's in His name that we pray. Amen.